0: Good afternoon, listeners. My name is Adam McNeil, your host of New Books in African-American Studies. Today, we have the opportunity to hear from Dr. Eula Taylor, professor of African-American Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. And today, we're going to be talking to her about her recently published book in 2017, published by the University of North Carolina Press, called The Promise of Patriarchy, Women and the Nation of Islam. Good afternoon, Dr. Taylor. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Very good. And um, thank you once again for coming on to the channel um, this particular evening, afternoon. You know, you're out there in uh, in, in pretty uh, Bay Area, California, and I'm in very dreary and cold Boston, Massachusetts. You know, so, so definitely welcome and thank you for coming on to the channel today. Yes. And so, yep, yep. And um, I I definitely um, thank you once again for coming on. And uh, can you please, you know, we like to, before we get into the interview, uh, really get into, um, you know, what got you to this project? So can you give us a little rundown on that, please?
1: Sure. Um, This is a project that I've been thinking about for years. I wrote a book um, titled The Veiled Garvey, The Life and Times of Amy Jakes Garvey, which is an intellectual biography of Marcus Garvey's second wife. And what I learned in terms of writing that text was that after Marcus Garvey was deported from the United States in 1927, that in 1930, many former Garveyites actually went into what was initially called the Allah Temple of Islam that later became the Nation of Islam. So I was always curious about that. Then later on, I co-authored a book on the Black Panther Party. And in that book, I found out that many former members of the Nation of Islam, particularly during the height of COINTELPRO, went into the Nation of Islam. Some of them went to the Nation of Islam to hide and then found themselves staying in that movement. And so on both ends of my work, the Nation of Islam appeared. And then finally, when um, Spike Lee's um, film on Malcolm X came out, I remember I was a young assistant professor and um, I was asked to be on a panel to have a conversation at the end of the film. And I knew since I am a black woman that most likely any question about women in the movie will come directly to me. And so I ran to the library and um, tried to learn as much as I could about the experiences of women in the nation of Islam. And I was actually shocked that there weren't, any scholarly works. There were a lot of like pictorial histories, you know, pictures of them in Essence magazine, but nothing really giving them an an academic intellectual treatment. And so all of this combined, wherein the nation of Islam haunted me in a particular way, the experiences of women. And finally, I just said, you know what, I just need to dive into this.
0: And uh, f- for sure, we're definitely uh, happy here uh, that you dove in uh, head first into this project. And you, you know, as my mom would say, when it comes to food, you definitely put your foot in. it.
1: <laughs> I like your mom.
0: Yes, oh, absolutely. Sweet potato pie, holiday time. It was a good one. <laughs> very good, very good. And so, um, thank you for for that. You know, bit of your biography because. Um, a lot of times we have, you know, academics and and non-academics alike, you know, c- flocking to our channel. And we definitely want to know about, you know, what brought people to these, to the projects. And um, as a future p- uh, PhD student in the, this next year, you know, it, you put your life into these projects. And so, you know, it's good to know a little bit about uh, not only the actual things in the text, but. What outside, you know, in the world brought you to to these particular texts?
1: Well, I'm, you know, I've always been interested in the possibility of, of building a black nation within a nation. And so, you know, my work on the Garvey movement, my work on the Black Panther Party and the Nation of Islam all speak to my fascination with black nationalism, with Pan-African thought to Black people trying to figure out how do we do more than survive America? how do we create options and choices on our own terms? So this is why my work has largely been centered
0: within black nationalist and pan african movements you know that that has been a historical question and and an organizing theme, you know going back you know to to the nineteenth century, even uh when you have you know different folks. Um, you know, like like Delaney and others who, who are who are doing such a thing, doing such the same. And so this is definitely within a particular tradition um, that is greatly within the frame of of the Nation of Islam. Um, and so um, before we start, you know, getting into you know the uh, the tenets of the Nation and and Black nationalism as a whole within the context of this group and movement. Um, Can you give us a quick biography and kind of like a couple uh, notes upon um, not only black nationalism in in the way that you see it, but also um, the nation of Islam as a whole to to give us the quicker or kind of not necessarily quick, but an origin story to to this particular group?
1: Sure. Um, The nation of Islam, as we know it, um, is rooted in the Allah Temple of Islam and the Allah Temple of Islam came into existence in Detroit in 1930, um, under the leadership of Fard Muhammad or Fard Muhammad, depending on how you want to pronounce his name. And um, as the story goes, he uh, uh, understood that many Black people who are migrating from the South um, right after World War I um, um, found themselves, on the one hand, um, seeking to re- seeking to find opportunities outside of the Jim Crow South, but then finding themselves in the Midwest and Northern and East Coast, still having to to fight Jim Crow, perhaps a little bit differently, but Jim Crow nevertheless. And so he began to um, visit people's homes and eventually brought people together to think about, you know, what actually is the root of their oppression? and and Fadat Muhammad, um, along with other people during this time period, during the 1930s, the Great Depression, they were looking for religious answers to a lot of social and political and economic dislocation. So when the Allah Temple of Islam comes into existence in 1930, there are other kinds of religious movements also happening. This is when you begin to see what today we would call Jehovah Witnesses going door to door during the 1930s. So there were a lot of religious groups coming into existence during the 30s, during the Great Depression. We can even think in our own lives, right? When things aren't going right, when it's like, could it get any worse? People who don't even identify themselves as religious or church-going people usually begin to pray. And so we see during this time period, many Black people looking for answers to how do you survive the Great Depression? And what... Father Muhammad was able to expose them to is that a lot of the the, the, the the Christian Christianity that they were um receiving in churches, you know, put a lot of the um their joy in the afterlife, put a lot of their their hopes in a future that um that they couldn't visually see. And so he began to articulate that. You know, one didn't have to die to go to hell because they were living in hell, and so just to begin to, in many ways, he took the familiar in terms of Christianity and shifted the lens so that Black people could imagine a different religious possibility.
0: Wow, that's um, that's definitely so true. Because as I was reading your text and um, as we were speaking offline. Um, I definitely had really no clue um, about the particular history uh, in depth of the nation actually reverse that. I thought I knew about the nation uh, whether from watching eyes on the prize or reading, you know, or or reading more about, um, you know, uh, the, the autobiography uh, Malcolm X has told uh, uh, Alex Haley, you know, in different texts, but, as I read this book and even talking to you uh, in offline, I realized like, Oh snap, man, it's not, it's not, that's not the truth. It's, it's more so a half truth. If that Um, it's definitely not a full moon. And so full moon of truth that is. And so for me reading this book and thinking about the particular history and even just the context of the great depression, um, like we sometimes as historians and as lay people, um, we see these dates, but don't kind of look in depth to see the rest of the story of what else is happening within the confines of those dates, you know, in the interwar years and the later portion of the interwar years, especially.
1: Yes. Yeah, so when when we look at, you know, the 1930s and the Great Depression and the ways in which Black people were suffering, um in many ways, it provided an opportunity when you're so desperate and you're suffering, you are willing to listen to a lot. You are um, willing to perhaps um, um, step out on faith in order to do more than survive the moment that you're living in. And many of the early converts to the Allah Temple of Islam, they we seeking an organization and they were seeking a religious way of life that would um, meet the needs, meet their needs where they were at. And that's what the Allah Temple of islam did for them.
0: Right. Absolutely. And so that particular history, when you talk about uh, when people are at their lowest, they look up. And sometimes what they see, you know, not necessarily on top of them per se, but what they see as they look up is sometimes the quickest thing that they go to um and in many ways they get enwrapped in it because it gives them a sense of belonging um within a within a context within a uh, an American nation that if the Great Depression is hitting, then what's happening to black people right and and so that particular. Uh, lens you definitely see within this this especially this origins story time frame of uh, the nation in detroit.
1: Yes, and and I think what's also so interesting is that many of the early teachings of the Nation of Islam um during the 1930s it shifted how people were experiencing the great depression. For example, during the Great Depression, oftentimes we think of, you know, food lines, right? There are all kind of stories of children dying from malnutrition, right? People um, losing their appetite because they're eating like, you know, stale bread and water daily. And so what um, Fatah Muhammad did was he told people, you know what, let's try to reduce our diet. So he encouraged his converts to eat one meal a day, to eat one meal a day. And in eating one meal a day, he said, first of all, your body's not working overtime. Second of all, a lot of the illnesses that we have are connected to our diets. And so now with people eating once a day, their hunger pains that you might experience are no longer a sign of you actually being hungry, but could be a sign of you embracing a certain kind of discipline in your life.
0: And when you look at the the dietary um, restrictions, really, that not only, as you say, the nation uh, put upon their members, but also um, their connection to the actual economies, too, um, which is, I think is, I think the economic world that the nation builds I think is one of the more fascinating por- parts about the entirety of their movement that we'll get to later on but especially um in this early period and and as, you, as we talk about the connection to the depression and so um let's talk a bit about kind of the contours of their the of of the way that they practice uh being the nation their their um their workings of Islam um as you spoke about with the with the founding um, a, a, a mosque or the founding group being um, the Allah Temple of Islam.
1: Yes. Well, the Allah Temple of Islam, again, coming under the leadership of um, father Muhammad and um, the first uh, temple is going to be um, in Detroit, the second one in Chicago. So we're talking about the Midwest and in this organization, he imagined um, building um, believers, converts, who were willing to, li- to live within his vision of an Islamic life. And um, within his vision, there are a lot of dietary restrictions. And these dietary restrictions are obviously around pork and alcohol. Um, there are a lot of restrictions on um um attire uh, a lot of restrictions on weight a woman was not supposed to weigh over 120 pounds a man over 115 it didn't matter how tall you were um and 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 in many ways the goal was to create a a disciplined convert a disciplined convert who would be a a pure uh, person who could receive um his teachings of how he imagined Islam. Um, It's during this time period, the 30s, and and pretty much up until World War II that it's it's very, very difficult to get at a lot of the teachings because what we know about the nation of Islam largely becomes a post-World War II phenomenon, if you will. And that's when... um, Elijah Muhammad moves center and his, his faction of the Nation of Islam moves to the center and eventually has the most converts. But during the 1930s, when we look at, um, under, um, Fadid Muhammad, and we're talking about from 1930 to 1934, his, his understanding of creating an, an Islamic community, um, is one where in, um, Converts go and listen to him um, preach or provide lessons. He He is presenting lessons that underscore and anchor his truth about Black people and his truth about white people. And within this truth... White people are understood as devils because of their devilish behavior, because of the way in which race had put black people in a state of being oppressed, um, particularly under Jim Crow laws. Um, and within this, he told black people that, you know what you have to do for self. You have to figure out how do you create opportunity for yourself wherein you are not um, um, dependent upon anyone else for your own family. Um, So in the 30s, one of the few things that we have from that period about those early converts was something called the Dillon Report. And I located the Dillon Report at the local library in Detroit, Michigan. And up until the point, I had never seen it um, in print. And the Dilla report was a report done by the Welfare Department in Detroit. Because of the Great Depression, you had many, many people on the dole, meaning that they were receiving welfare. And because of being because people were on the dole or receiving welfare, they would have what today we would call a role for an agent, if you will, someone who would monitor their behavior, someone who would ensure that they were um, living within the rules. And so because many of the members of the organization were taking their children out of public school in order to enroll them in the Allah Temple of Islam school. The the school began to report to the welfare agencies that these members were taking their children out of school. So this is how we begin to have an archival record on those early Muslim families. Because they took their children out of public school. And so the welfare department comes in through the attendance office. And so they begin to go in and they look at the behavior of what these parents are, how these parents are living, why they're taking their children out of school, and what this school looks like. And it's through this document that we're able to get at least a small lens on the early converts of, of, of the Allah Temple of Islam members. And here we find out that many of them, um, are, um, refuse to eat where the, um, where they're supposed to eat in the, quote, quote, welfare kitchen because of the food that's being served. Here we see that many of them refuse to send their children to particular camps because they see themselves as um, as not a part of that particular, quote, quote, Negro group. They see themselves as superior to them, if you will, in their understanding of themselves. Um, And it's here that we get a lot of details about the early lives of these converts in Detroit and how they were determined not to send their children to public schools because of the way in which Jim Crow functioned and operate wherein their children were taught that they were less than who their parents knew them to be
0: and that and that story goes into you know black self-sufficiency black uh black education, black removal from you know forms of public education because uh of really the lack of 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 black stories, for for instance, which well, still still a story today, Um, but you know, you know these 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 aspects are all you know within a traditional line, Um, and so you know, learning about this particular history and also not only how because as you talked about when how how you uh, came to this particular came to these particular documents, also tells a story of. Not only how the the nation was building but also what were people around them black and white you know uh, uh, governmental and non-governmental groups how did they interact and how do they think about the nation as it was building because America's had an interesting relationship with Islam um dating back all the way to uh enslavement and and even even Jefferson having um, uh copies of the Quran and different things like that. And so um, America's had a as a rough and weird history, um, a very combative history when it comes to Islam and this particular story that you talk about definitely shows that.
1: Well, you're absolutely right, um, especially when you look at um, other black folks in Detroit, um, many of the leaders um, in Detroit, Members of the national of the Urban League, members of the NAACP, they were deeply concerned about the al Temple of Islam. They were deeply concerned about how they believed um, um, that these converts were being duped, if you will, that these converts um, um, were being led astray. And so, what we see happening is that um, many of them believe that it was be- that. The fact that the Allah Temple of Islam could take hold in Detroit and convert as many as 8000 people there, they saw it as a shortcoming of their own leadership that they had not um, tapped into. Um, um, working class and, and underclass people and offered them support in the ways that they should. And so they, they saw, they were concerned about it. They were concerned about them, quote, quote, being led astray. They were concerned about them um, 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 being under the wrong influence.
0: You're, you're definitely right. That was an important aspect of the book um, that I definitely, um, it was very interesting to read about um, because as I said before, a lot of the, a lot as you said a lot of the history that we know of the nation is a nation in almost the 1950s or almost the 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 time you know the late 1940s 1950s as uh, as as Malcolm Little and later Malcolm X is getting out of jail um in, in Massachusetts and such like that and so um throughout this entire frame you know we're talking about um the early uh influencers and the creators of the nation but the stories about women like, um, you know, uh, the, the wife of Elijah Muhammad, uh, Claire Poole, uh, Claire uh, Muhammad before, I mean, I assume after, and others are, they're, they're, they're ones where they are the ones who are making inroads within the, the nation and really defining and helping to redefine what black womanhood is within the frame of, uh, of uh, what became, you know, the nation of Islam.
1: Yes. um, The first chapter of the book is really, really focused on on Clara Poole, who will become Clara Muhammad, um, because I point out how it's really largely through her that she encourages her husband to accept his own um, um, leadership in the organization. And a lot of it was largely because of her own frustrations during the Great Depression and how um, Elijah Poole at the time had difficulty holding a job, was drinking, um, would gamble the money away. They had small children and she was trying to figure out how can I make him responsible to this family? And because of her sister-in-law and Elijah Poole's brother who had been going to hear um, Farah speak that they encouraged her to come and she went and she liked a lot of what he was saying and a lot of what he was saying was that he was encouraging those Black people in the audience to understand that they were quote, quote, the original man, right? That they were the cream, that they were not what Jim Crow was trying to, um, get them to digest and understand that they were second class anything. She was encouraged by it, and she knew her husband would be encouraged by it. And at one time, she went to one of the lectures, and 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 it's reported that he asked, you know, where's the man that lives in Hamtramck? And this is where they lived. And she raised, she acknowledged and said, you know, he is my husband. And it's reported that he said, tell him to continue to do what he's doing, and I'll back him in what he did. And she reported she allegedly reported this to Elijah and clearly he needed to hear that more than anybody. And it transformed him in terms of understanding who he was and who he could be.
0: Right. And, and, and that to me was, it's just one of those stories of, you know, as we see so many, so many times in in our history as, as, as black people, when when you have someone encouraging you, when someone believes in you more than really you believe in yourself, um, and then, you know, that that's really how a lot of people have dragged themselves out of the ditches of life, is that the words and the actions of others on your particular behalf emboldens you to do and produce greatness and you know, Elijah Muhammad is, is a testament of that because of his wife. And, and in many ways, there is no, there is no nation of Islam, at least in the way that we know it to be, unless there is a Clara pool also Clara uh, uh, Muhammad. And I don't think that that's definitely an understatement. I, I don't think that's a grandiose statement to make.
1: Absolutely. Between Clara Poole, along with other women that I tried to recenter in this story, women like um, the, the secretary of Farah um, 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 Mohammed, who was um, 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 Sister Bernstein who I, I highlight, um, in the book, um, other women who were very, very active during, um, World War II. So, um, whether we're talking about reformer Bernstein Sharif, who was the, um, who was actually the secretary to Fatah Muhammad, right? Um, her, her, her role in, um, helping to maintain this organization, right? Her role in ensuring that people were registering to be a part of this organization is lifted from the ashes and, and centered into the book. When we look at World War II and in terms of the role of sister Clara, you know, I also um, introduced um, um, other women who, who were very, very important to, um, helping to shift the Allah Temple of Islam from uh, into the nation of Islam. Um, S- Sister Pauline Bahar, who in many ways kept the organization going during World War II when most of the men were incarcerated because they refused to go to World War II. So I tried to introduce new new voices who have fallen outside of our... Um, understanding of the early history of the nation of Islam.
0: And I really appreciate that because as, you know, as I said before, and I've probably said it two or three times by now, um, I didn't know about a lot of these women. And so I definitely appreciate that. And uh, also for our listeners, just to make sure uh, you know exactly what we're talking about here, um, I'm speaking to Dr. Eula uh, Taylor at the University of California at Berkeley whose book published uh, very recently through the University of North Carolina Press most importantly um the promise of patriarchy women in the nation of islam and so this particular book is is great because you'll we we learned we've already learned so much about the centrality of black women in the creation of this of this great group but more importantly understanding also kind of how we haven't learned about them. And so this is, if anything, a reclamation project and, 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 and really re-energizing our understanding of the nation. And it's one of the more important groups of the entirety of the 20th century. Um, and so definitely uh, appreciate, uh, once again, the, the work that you put in for this, Dr. Taylor.
1: Thank you so much. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about the Nation of Islam is that oftentimes we think about it exclusively in the terms of Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad because they were so central and, 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 and important to it. Um, and for me, I kind of wanted to go backwards and also move forward. So, this is why those early voices like Clara Muhammad and Bernstein, um, Sharif and and, um, Pauline Bahara and Sister Thelma X are important. but I also wanted to move forward too, because I think one of the things that's so interesting about the Nation of Islam is that some people were in the Nation of Islam for a couple of months. Some people were in for years. Some people were in for, you know, a lifetime. But a lot of people had an experience in it particularly in the 60s. So, and that's one of the things that I try to point out in the book is that people like um, James Etta X, popularly known as Etta James, had a short period in the nation in 1960. People like um, Sonia Sanchez of the arts movement um, was in the nation, you know, in the early 70s. Um, So I wanted to kind of, combine both people who could be identified as rank and file, people who, you know, were not sister captains, people whose husbands were not higher up um, in terms of the structure of the nation to kind of understand what is it like to be a rank and file member of this movement, along with people who were in positions of structural power. So I tried to offer a balance of, of of those experiences
0: and, and that's great because a lot of times we hear about these uh particular uh important figures like you said Eddie james and sonia sanchez and and others and you know it, it's it's an organization being the nation that if, especially if you're in the urban north um and, and out west is very influential. And as it gleans down more downward toward the south, though, you know, Atlanta historically has had a, 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 a temple, a mosque there, um, it, it just spreads, spreads, spreads. And so you come into contact with people. And even though you may not be a member of the nation, you will come into contact with them. And in many ways, they're very influential people. Absolutely.
1: And I have to say, Atlanta for a long time was the only mosque in the south.
0: Right, and, and that was something that I didn't even think about as well. Um, and so, you know, prior to my uh, my uh, talking about your uh, the title of your book and such like that, and a brief bit of your bio, you spoke about the incarceration during World War II. And so, if we can kind of turn back there real quick, because something that was interesting for me was learning about even the incarceration and what that did for the for some of the the women who were actually incarcerated themselves.
1: Yes, well, we have women who were incarcerated, spent short period, well, 30 days in jail in Chicago, for example, during the 1930s. So that's where I was able to document um, women actually being in jail. Um, For the World War II period, only one woman, Sister Pauline Bahar, was indicted for sedition. Um, um, But she was not incarcerated the way in which Elijah Muhammad and at least 100 other men were incarcerated because of their refusal um, to go to World War II. But what what I point out in terms of incarceration, whether it's the 1930s, is that oftentimes we think about... Oh, people going to jail for 30 days as if that's just something easy. And it's not, just the way it's not easy to go to jail for longer periods of time. So I, for the time period that they are doing time in Cook County Jail, I go through and I point out how during the 1930s, when you were incarcerated, um, not only, you know, were you forced to sleep on sheets that other people had slept on, but, you know, there was a lot of contagion in the prison, how oftentimes many people who were in prison, if there were like, um, uh, it was supposed to hold five people, they might have 15 people in that one cell. And so the conditions were horrible. Um, Fast forward to World War II, one of the things that I point out is that when Elijah Muhammad and the other men were incarcerated, that women kept the movement going. And I point out how I believe that it's during this period that not only does the Honorable Elijah Muhammad see the importance of of. of, of, of Organizing and pulling people who are incarcerated into his movement, but the women also begin to see the importance of literacy, that is actually writing letters. Wherein we often think about you know quote quote fishing or bringing members into the organization um as being exclusively um people being on the corners, men and men being on the corners and pulling people in. but I point out how women are actually writing letters to men who are incarcerated, and that becomes a way in which they are quote quote fishing for new members,
0: and that's important because. You know, you hear these stories in different contexts of women on the home front um, holding down, um, you know, whether within the confines of employment or within within this context of uh, keeping a nation literally together, um, women are at the forefront of that. Um, and once again, if you don't have women like Claire, uh, Claire Muhammad and the women who kept the nation going within the frame of the incarceration of many of the uh, leaders um, uh, of male leaders, that is of the organization, I was of the nation, um, then you don't have, you You can't reach uh, 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 Malcolm. You can't reach the other people. Once the, the nation pushes towards uh, like sort of like a, a, a prison ministry or prison outreach that they have in, in the, in the, in the latter forties and such.
1: It's interesting because um, in addition to, to conducting research in Detroit, where I found the Dillon report, I also con- conducted research in New York, at the Schomburg library, as most of you know, that they have the Malcolm X um, um, archive there. And I was able to find a letter that um, Malcolm X wrote, wherein he pointed out how, um, he was chastising the brothers because they were saying, you know, the women are, are sending out more letters than the men. Um, and yes. And so the whole idea of and I think this is so important of, of literacy at this time period. Um, in order to become a member of the Nation of Islam, you had to be able to write a letter. Right. You had to be able to um, uh, replicate a letter. Replicated in terms of um, not just spelling, but in, in terms of just how one um, and penmanship and literacy. Um, some people learn to read and write because they wanted to be a member, because it was required for membership. And so I think it's just oftentimes those are the quote-quote small things that fall out of discussion and conversation around membership. And I think it's just so very, very important, the the role of literacy and not only um, allowing one to be a member, but as well as pulling other people into membership.
0: Right. And and I think, you know, that that is so important because as we talked about before, um, within the context of, of Clara Poole pulling Elijah out of the dr- little sometimes drunken stupors that he would be under the nation uh, the the rise of of this particular group gave him something to not only look forward to but to work into and the same thing qualifies here as well um so that's definitely important because if you're imprisoned you know I've never been in prison, but I can only imagine that you need something to help you to stay sane so that you can reach the time at which your duration and, and within imprisonment is over. And what they're able to do is keep people alive in many ways. Uh, Yeah. Because you see sometimes when, uh, when someone's been married 50 or 60 years, you see one of them die and then within the next day or two the other one dies too because there's they feel like potentially their person is gone there might be nothing anything to live for they want to be with them in and in, in in heaven for instance and so within this context you know they wanted to be able to get out of the hell that is within imprisonment and that potential heaven was you know the nation
1: and in writing to I, I talk about writing as a way in which to not only... Um Um, fish pull people in the organization, but, but it also becomes a way for the women who are actually writing to reaffirm why they are committed to the organization, right? So in that they're talking about, you know, how their life was prior to their membership, what their life is like now since they are a member of the Nation of Islam. So I talk about just the whole writing process itself as a way in which to reaffirm your own commitment to the organization
0: when I think about literacy and, and, and the importance of literacy, this, you know, the, the nation, you know, made it very, as you, as you greatly said, you know, the nation made it very important that writing and literacy was so important. And so it's great to really learn about this because once again, I had no clue about this. And so my eyes are uh, very much open and I'm, and I'm glad about it. Going, you know, a little bit further into the book, um, you know, can we talk about, you know, that that pivotal time, you know, within the 1950s, pushing towards the 1960s when the when the um, when the rise of the nation nationally really begins to go, it really gets cranking up. So would we be able to talk about the, the, the women that were very integral to that particular time frame in that particular process?
1: Sure. It's it's very interesting because when we look at the Nation of Islam after World War II, first of all, I would like to say that it's really during World War II that we have something called the Nation of Islam. At this point, it's really, really clear that we have this transition from the Allah, Allah Temple of Islam into the Nation of Islam. I wasn't able to like, you know, Pinpoint the exact day, but it's definitely during this period that we see this transition, and we also see a transition wherein Elijah Muhammad, who um, is going to be centered in Chicago, and where his uh, his version of the Nation of Islam is going to blossom. And I say that because in Detroit there were other people who were leading um, their version of the Nation of Islam at that time as well. So during the um, World War II period, again, I talked a little bit about why I introduced a woman named Pauline um, Bahar, who is very, very interesting in terms of keeping the Nation of Islam um, going in terms of the women continue to meet. They're meeting um, in homes. Um, They are forced to... uh, defend themselves verbally when people on the streets are uh, critiquing what they're wearing um, and what they were wearing, were their uniforms and those uniforms in many ways look like those uniforms that the black cross nurses of the Garvey movement wore during the 1920s. Um, And so when we get to the 1950s, this is where Minister Malcolm X definitely, definitely moves to center stage. And it's during this time period where we begin to see nation women flexing their womanhood in a lot of different ways. And I document how women are are understanding and being um, um, trained in the teachings of the Nation of Islam through the Muslim Girls Training and General Civilization class, the MGTGCC. So at this time, when we're talking about by 1955, there were about, I think there were 15 temples um, in the United States, but by 1959, there were over 50. So this is where we really, really do see just the, 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 the blossoming, right, of this movement. Uh, again, so 1955, we have about 15, 1959, they're over 50. So this is when it truly, truly expands. And it's expanding. We're in the MGT, Women learn their roles in the organization and men learn their roles in the organization through the FOI, the Fruit of Islam. And um, it's during this time period that a woman named Sister Thelma X moves into the center for me. And Sister Thelma X, I was able to locate her very, very slim archive, if you will, at um, it was Howard University. The um, Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. I'm um, um, the C. Eric Lincoln Papers. And um, she wrote. um, Well, there was I don't know how many versions of this she was able to produce. But in the C. Eric Lincoln Papers, there um, is a, a, a small newsletter, if you will, that you could describe it as that, that she that called Truth that she was the author of. And in it, she basically pointed out um, why one would want to join the nation of Islam. And she talked about how Elijah Muhammad was her 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 leader and teacher. She talked about um, the critique of integration. She had um, articles such as... Um, an Asiatic grandmother speaks for the Negro children, and she offered her solution to the Little Rock problem of integration. And she posed questions such as, what good is your son's diploma hanging on the wall while he is while he is hanging on the limb of a tree? So she pointed out, um, you know, what Jim Crow actually offered black people and how the only ways in which black people would be able to live and be their full selves were if they were deeply committed to creating their own nation. And she talked about how um, that integration was not, integration in schools was not the way for black people to move forward. She basically was very, very critical of um, of integration or desegregation, because she believed that it was putting children in harm's way. she believed that um that the nation of islam schooling was the proper way to educate Black people to know who they were and, and who they could possibly become. So she was very, very critical of the direction of the NAACP um, at the time. And she was very, very critical of, of, uh, of the leadership of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um And so I point out her very slim archive, but important archive for the 50s. Um, I also point out that there were women like Sister Louise Dunlap and Sister Ernestine Scott, women who have completely fallen out of the um, Nation of Islam's history. Um, But these are women who you know, sat in a white-only railroad station and who were confronted by a police officer who, um, um, because of their willingness to sit in a white-only um, section of the railroad station, eventually two men who were members of the Nation Islam come to their defense. And these men... Um, 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 engage in a confrontation with that police officer. And in the end, because of their willingness to defend those two women, they find themselves in jail. And then Minister Malcolm X X is forced to go and and bail them out of of jail. And the story um, enters into the history of the Nation of Islam, largely because of the men going to jail and Malcolm X having to bail them out. But the fact of the matter is it all began with these two women taking the position that they could sit wherever they wanted to. And so I introduced them into the 1950s. Um, And finally, for the 50s, I introduced Sister Betty X who would eventually become um, the wife of Minister Malcolm X. But what I do around Betty X is that oftentimes people talk about Betty's conversion into the Nation of Islam. But I actually begin with the woman who Betty simply describes as a nurse's aide at the hospital who actually invited her to dinner and eventually to the temple. And I talk about this unnamed woman as a woman who is actually fishing for women like Sister Betty. And so although I don't have her name, I talk about how Betty describes her interaction with her and how she's constantly encouraging her to come back to the temple to hear her minister, who at that time was Minister Malcolm X.
0: And, and that's huge. And I, and I appreciate you doing that, because a lot of times when we think about uh, Sister Betty, it's not it, it's always about her attached to uh, uh uh minister malcolm you know and then and then going into marriage but it's good to hear and to learn about what how did she get into the nation and 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 what was her story about her coming into it because she is such an important figure um today and obviously you know it's always good to know especially in the context of learning and writing about black women about them about their lives and whether they're not attached to somebody else right they're they're living their lives and they're doing their thing and then you know how do they come into their um how do they build themselves up effectively um uh, and, and so I definitely appreciate you you doing that especially in this uh, particular context
1: yes one of the things that i was that i that i really tried to put forward in this book is that And the reason why I titled it The Promise of Patriarchy is because I wanted people to I want people to understand that the concept of patriarchy. Right. This whole idea that women, if you are a part of this organization, that there are going to be some things that are going to be beneficial for you you're going to have the choice of not having to work outside the home. And during the 50s, this meant you're going to have the choice of not having to work as a domestic. Because most of the women during the 1950s who are Black, who are not formally educated, they are working as some form of a domestic. And there was no guarantee that you would have uh, a better um a better experience working as a domestic in a white person's home than being a a wife in a patriarchal home. And so I point out how oftentimes we go to all of the, the troubling and, 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 and problematic nature of patriarchy, that is oppression and domination. And definitely women in the nation of Islam walked that tight rope and that, how do I live with someone who technically is, has the final say, wherein I am not, um, oppressed, wherein I am not dominated, wherein I am heard. And so having to walk that tightrope became difficult for some women. But if you were able to achieve a healthy balance of respect and protection and trust, then it could be a home wherein a woman would be shielded from all of the violence of Jim Crow life.
0: And that's and that's so true because, you know, when you think about you know the, you know p- how people might characterize women within the nation, um, as as not having you know uh, quote unquote agency and, and and these different things. It's much more complicated than that, and really that's the that's the one of the more important interventions that your book makes is to complicate that particular narrative, um, when it came to women, uh, uh within the the, the the within the actual nation. And that they produced greatness within the nation. Um, and so, you know, it's not taking away from what the actual realities of that were on a daily basis, but it's very important that we hear about their contributions and not only con- contributions, because those could be peripheral, but their central workings within the organization or within the actual nation, excuse me.
1: You're absolutely right and one of the things that I that I really really did my best to to anchor in this book is that how one experienced the nation of Islam in 1930 would be different from how you experienced it in 40 versus 50, 60 and 70 because a lot of times when people write about how women are experiencing black nationalist or patriarchal movements it is if they're not experiencing history. And I wanted Yes. And I wanted to point out, you know, the Great Depression, you're going to have a certain kind of experience in the nation versus the 1950s when we have, you know, um, suburban life coming into existence where you have a lot of, of, of Black women still being forced to work as domestics. You're going to experience the nation in a particular way versus the 1960s when we begin to have more options and choices about um, um, building a Black nation and what that could look like. Versus the 1970s when we have the women's movement, right? And how Black women are experiencing Black feminism and, and and different kind of options and how even under those conditions, people still might find themselves going back into the nation because of what they experienced in um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, what they experienced in the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, what they experienced even in the women's movement.
0: Right. And that's an important breakdown because when you look at, you know, how the nation grows within the 60s and and you have so many things that are going on that, yes, you are building this nation, but it's not isolated so much from what is going on and the contours of the actual uh, nation that your nation is within. Um, And so uh, uh realizing that for me, it was important because all of you know it's it's not you know uh, women within the nation of islam um they were not separated from this right they they were affected and influenced hence why some of them left and 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 went into these other groups and different movements and then as you say uh ultimately came back uh and 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 they had different experiences that brought them back but nevertheless they did, did decide to come back and i think that's an important uh piece that once again i had no clue about
1: Yes. At the Nation of Islam, I, some, I was um, giving a talk um, last week in D.C., and I was asked a question about what about the second and third generation of people who, who are a part of the Nation of Islam? How are they experiencing? I thought it was a great question, because one of the things that I do in the book, I talk about coming of age in the nation. I talk about how. Um, 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 There were people born in the nation or people who were raised in the nation. So, for example, Muhammad Ali's second wife, Belinda Boyd, who becomes Khalila Ali, she was raised in the nation. Um, she, She had she had a longer history in the nation of Islam than Muhammad Ali himself. And so how she experienced the nation would be different from how her parents experienced it and then later on their own children. And so I think it's important to understand that because the nation of the nation of Islam has a history you have second and third generation people being born and raised going in and out of it the way in which you have second and third generation people being uh, children of preachers, right, and ministers, and 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 and, and, and parts of different um, Christian denominations going in and out of of the church.
0: As as I know for sure, um, you know what's important for me, and and part of the reason why for me the nation is actually very important, though I was never a member. Was you know when I'm reading, uh you know when i'm reading about you know malcolm and and, and reading his autobiography i was it was at a very pivotal time in my life and and when i was uh, first about to start graduate school and i read that book and it made me think like oh snap man this brother here uh, uh malcolm he he's He's reciting, you know, poetically from the Bible, and I'm like, shoot, I need to, I need to set my game up. I say I'm this, but I need to, you know, all right, Malcolm, you, you you're motivating me, my brother, and so, um, you know, we all go in and out of these different um traditions, and uh, sometimes anyway, and there are things that bring in, and there are things that bring out, but telling that particular story uh, of the deviations and, and the the comebacks are very important, and it's also why. Um, it brings us even to the, the 70s and the 80s as well within the nation as, you know, um, as uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan is, you know, uh, building up and then these other uh, fact, factions are building up too after the the, the death of Elijah Muhammad um, in the early 70s.
1: Yes, I, I think it's important at this time perhaps to to say that how a person experienced the nation of Islam largely had to do with where you were actually living, you know, um, the mosque, who was your minister of your mosque, who was your brother, captain, who was your sister captain, because they're setting the tone for the the mosque itself. And, um, I say that because, um, Just the way in which you could experience the Black Panther Party in Oakland different from how you might experience it in Los Angeles versus how you experienced it in New York or Seattle, the Nation of Islam is comparable. And um, and so this is why in many ways. Um, I'm looking at the period between 1930 and 1975, but how you experienced it largely had to do with where you were at and who were the leaders of your particular mosque. Um, And so when you get into the post-1975 period where you have a lot of of, of different um, 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 factions coming into existence, how you experience that had a lot to do with the teachings of the leader in that particular group, and um, um, and where you were physically living. Um, and in the book, I um, I interviewed people who had experienced the Nation of Islam in the Midwest, in California, in um, on the East Coast. But what I try to do is um, I try to listen to all of their stories to figure out, you know, what are some of the common elements of it in order to write this history? Because I definitely understand that people are going to experience it you know, um, based on the people that are around them,
0: right? And 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 thank you for that. I appreciate that because you are right. How you experience something is not uniform to uh, the actual you know group that you profess that you're a part of, right? Um, and and definitely see that painted throughout. Um, and so, you know, when when you talk even about you know. What's going on in, in the seventies and such like that, and, and like you said, it's mostly towards you know the mid seventies and such like that. But also, uh, your your um your epilogue and and your your uh, conclusion were very important for me in in understanding. You know, you talk about uh the particular um contours of the group of of the nation as you move towards um the 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 end of the 20th and going into the 21st century as well um, with the ode to, to the eighties too. And so that time was, I think very important because that's also a time where, you know, uh, how I came to understand the, uh, the nation as well started to get painted too. Um, as a lot of us, you know, you have these, you know, I'm sure you've seen it, that picture, uh, that, that black backgrounded picture where you have a um, uh, 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 you have the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, uh, uh, was it maybe Malcolm X and King and, and everybody in the background. Right. Um, and, and so that's that's, you know, where I started to, to really like, who is that? Guy? Oh, it's a it's a you know, it's a Elijah Muhammad. So. Yeah.
1: So you're absolutely right. So when Elijah Muhammad died, um, I think it was February 25th, 1975. It's important to say so did his Nation of Islam. And so, upon his death, his his children, um, whom at that time were identified as the royal family, they proclaimed that um, um, Wallace D. Muhammad, who was the seventh child of Clara and Elijah Muhammad, would become the new leader of the organization, and. Within six months, um, Wallace Muhammad, he revised a lot of his father's Islamic teachings, uh, particularly um, the teaching that depicted whites as devils. In fact, it was under um, Wallace Muhammad that we have the first white person um, become a part of the Nation of Islam um, in terms of of conversion. And many of the people who had... um, who were, quote, quote, the original followers of Elijah Muhammad under what became known as the original nation of Islam, did not like the direction that um, um, Wallace Muhammad was going, and they began to break off. And so in the epilogue, I identify three of these branches um, Silas Muhammad in Atlanta, uh, Yusuf Bay in Oakland, and um, um, Louis Farrakhan, which had the long, the largest number of converts. Um, and this was actually a very difficult story to tell. Um, largely because of what happened in Oakland, California, under the leadership of Yusuf Bey. But I concluded by um, pointing out that that it's in the post-1975 period that you still have people Doing their best to figure out how am I going to be able to do more than survive America? So um, white supremacy, racial violence, police brutality, poverty, poor schooling, the high incarceration of black folks, right? Um, these were the things that spurred people to join the nation in 1930. And so clearly those same conditions are the reason why people continue to join this organization, you know, in the present moment. And in the end, I, my last two words in the book are I understand because I do Um, in terms of when you are living in an environment where there is, you know, so much anti-Black Um, rhetoric and harm um, being articulated. People are looking for a place, uh, a way in which to um, navigate all of this. And the Nation of Islam has become a site for some.
0: And that is very important. And it's also, you know, um, in in the last couple of minutes that we have you, um, it's definitely important that, you know, you put, that final aspect of it with your epilogue, because the the nation is, you know, it's one of the great organizations. You know, it's one of the great movements and the great groups um, of the tw- of the twentieth century. Um, it's also one of the most controversial too, and so trying to understand the nation um, is something that's also very important too. Uh, and, and so, when you say I understand, as far as you know the the the, the yearning to create a nation, and, and and the 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 frames and and the direction that they took to do it, I understand as well. And hopefully, our listeners better understand. And we'll go and get that book. And so, that book being the Promise of Patriarchy: Women and the Nation of Islam. And um, in the last, uh, like I said, in the last couple of minutes, um. You know, it, it takes a lot to, to 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 write these books, and it takes a lot of a uh, takes a lot of different kinds of energy, shall we say? Um, but with that said, is there anything that you're working on that you can give us a little, you know, brief uh, synopsis about, if, if possible? Or anything else that you got uh, going on within within uh, within your writing life? Sure. Um,
1: I think for most. Um scholars, one of the ways to put closure on one project is to begin another. And so I was able to put closure on the promise of patriarchy by beginning a new project on a woman named Frances Beale. Frances Beale um, was a member of SNCC, the student online coordinating committee, and a founding member of the Third World Women's Alliance, which um, in many ways became a How can I say Um, it became the anchor for our understanding of women of color feminism, um, for black feminism. So the Third World Women's Alliance, for example, was very, very active in the 70s in support of Angela Davis. Um, Frances Bill herself wrote a wonderful, wonderful essay in the late 60s called Double Jeopardy to be black and female um, in in the movement. So I'm really, really interested in Frances Beale as an activist of the 60s, but most importantly, how she as as, as a radical activist continue to live a life committed to freedom. So in the 60s, she's a part of SNCC. In the 70s, she's a part of the Third World Women's Alliance. During the 80s, she's a part of the um, apartheid movement. Um, um, As she goes to South Africa to be a part of, of, of witnessing the election process. And if you fast forward, she um, was very, very active in um, the Black Radical Congress. In fact, she was the national secretary. So I'm interested in her life because in many ways, it's the life of a Black radical. And I'm interested in how someone can remain committed to... Uh, freedom, to liberation, and to be able to live and witness and observe so much change and to continue to reignite her commitment every step of the way. And what are those lessons that we can apply for us today to give us courage and energy and a certain kind of resilience to do more?
0: and and we definitely appreciate you for taking this for you today to take the uh, initiative to do more um and and hopefully once uh once you complete that project uh, we'll get you back on the channel for sure i would be honored very good so once again uh we have dr uh eula taylor professor of african-american studies at university of california at berkeley And we've been talking to her today about her recent book from the University of North Carolina Press entitled The Promise of Patriarchy, Women and the Nation of Islam.